15 years have passed since Jennifer Servo's murder. A lot can change in 15 years. People grow up. They have kids of their own. Their perspectives change. They end relationships and friendships. And they start new relationships and new friendships. Sometimes people just drift apart. Sometimes people who were scared are no longer around the people they were scared of. And sometimes people just don't realize how important the information they have really is. I can't promise you that we'll solve Jennifer's case, but I can promise that together we have a better chance than any one of us working alone. Jennifer needs justice, and so does Abilene. So come along with me on my search for a real-life murderer. Welcome back to Justice Delayed, the unsolved homicide of Jennifer Olson Servo. I'm Sharon Newman Edwards, your host. Over the course of the last two episodes, we've gone over the entire timeline leading up to and immediately following Jennifer's murder, basically covering the last three months of Jennifer's life, as well as the details about the two main suspects that Jennifer knew and the evidence that we have to work with. Whenever I talk to one of my listeners, they seem to have a ton of questions about Jennifer's case, so I figured we'd do a Q&A to sort of change things up a bit. We've had enough questions, and there's so much to discuss that I've decided to split it up into two episodes. So if I don't answer your question today, the answer is probably coming next week, or at least as much of an answer as I have so far. But don't worry, there will be some new information in both episodes, and you won't want to miss it. So today, along with answering listener questions, I'm kind of trying to bring together a lot of the pieces of information we've discussed previously and trying to make sense of them and fit them into a logical scenario. For this episode, and maybe the next one, I'll be joined intermittently by my husband and EP, David Edwards. He's going to help us walk through some of your questions and brainstorm with me on some of the more puzzling aspects of Jennifer's case. So here we go. This is episode six. It's your turn. So our first question is from the Facebook discussion group, and it's from a while ago, but it's a good one, and it includes a theory, too. Kathy asks, I wonder if someone like a maintenance guy used a key to get in and waited for her. If she came in on the phone, he may have stayed hidden until she got off of it. So I think the maintenance man, or another apartment employee being the perpetrator, is definitely one of the theories we have to consider. A maintenance man would absolutely have had access to Jennifer's apartment. This theory also ties into my question in episode four about whether Jennifer called the college boyfriend from her car on her way home that night, if she's even the one who placed that call. Still working on that. We have some intriguing information about the maintenance man in Jennifer's case. Kathy was way ahead of me on this because the information about the maintenance man didn't come out on the podcast until episode five. Just to recap briefly, the Abilene colleague and the mutual friend slash coworker had gone over to Jennifer's apartment to check on her on Wednesday morning sometime. 
They knocked on Jennifer's door, tried the door, which was locked, and called her cell phone again, all with no response. This is all in the 2014 Carlton Stowers book, Girl in the Grave and Other True Crime Stories, in the chapter entitled, The Murder of Jennifer Servo. It's important to note here that a lot of the information in Stowers' book was gathered by him and presented in an eight-part series of newspaper articles about Jennifer, which were published in the Abilene Reporter News on October 8th through the 15th, 2006, including this information. But specifically in Stowers' 2014 book, he says as the two were standing in front of Jennifer's second-floor door, the mutual friend slash co-worker, a woman, remembers seeing an apartment maintenance man walking slowly along the sidewalk below, repeatedly glancing over his shoulder in their direction. She said, quote, he gave me the creeps, unquote. So we don't know for sure. They may have been knocking loudly and calling Jennifer's name through the door and just raised the maintenance man's curiosity. But could it also be that he was watching them to see what was about to happen? knowing what they would find if they had a key and were about to use it. The maintenance man would have no idea whether one of them was Jennifer's emergency contact and whether or not they had a key in their pocket that they were about to use as a last resort. So then, after receiving no answer at her door or on her cell phone, the mutual friend slash co-worker went on to the TV station by herself after taking the Abilene colleague back to his place, and she told her boss, Actually, he was all three of their bosses, the mutual friend slash co-worker, Jennifer. And what I failed to mention on the last episode is that this was also the Abilene colleague's boss. Just an interesting tidbit. So upon hearing what had just happened, their boss immediately called Jennifer's apartment building and asked them to check on Jennifer. As I said in episode five, sources differ on this, but Stowers says in his book that it was a female apartment manager that found Jennifer while the September 19, 2002 article by Dan Trigoboff, I still hope I'm saying his name right, called Reporter Killed in Abilene from BroadcastingandCable.com, says Jennifer was found, quote, by a manager and maintenance man at her apartment complex, unquote. Other sources are less specific and simply refer to a generic apartment complex employee, so they're not particularly helpful on this point. So I've been mulling over this inconsistency for several weeks, looking over the various articles I've been able to locate and trying to decide whether there's anything to the discrepancy. I posed the question in last week's episode, was Jennifer found by two people, an apartment manager and a maintenance man, or just one person who was both an apartment manager and a maintenance man? The other option, I guess, is that there was some kind of error in reporting by one or the other of the sources we have, because Stowers is pretty clear that a woman found Jennifer, but was someone else with her, a maintenance man that for some reason has been written out or simply fallen out of the story by mere oversight? David, what do you think about a maintenance man theory? Well, clearly it's possible. I mean, that's something that we've always realized with this is that, they're, that the, the guy had a key. So obviously, if he had the key, because he had the you know a skeleton key kind of thing where he could get into any apartment at any time, that doesn't mean that right away he's guilty by any means. But certainly, it, there's the possibility he would be able to do that. Well, it puts him on the suspect list for sure, and I guess that the police would have looked at him at least. Agreed, and I think uh, what was it? Six people 
had their DNA tested. Mm -hmm. We don't know who they are, but it certainly makes sense that he would have been one of them. Well, you would think he would have been one of the people. Well, not necessarily. She'd lived there two months, so he wouldn't necessarily have been in her apartment in the last month, right? Possibly. You never know. Maybe the air conditioner went out. Maybe any number of things that would have caused him to be there. And the fact is, I mean, and we've, we've also agreed that the one month that they talked about seemed a little arbitrary, seemed just a weird time frame to say, oh, we only tested DNA from a month. So I think that regardless, he may, even if it was just on the door handle itself, may have had a reason to be up there. Well, I, I think one of the things is, you know, the detective said they were looking for people who had been in there. They were testing DNA for people who had been in there in the last month. And I don't know what that kind of arbitrary time frame is and why it, why it exists, why he said that. I, that part is a little puzzling to me. It never made sense, but I th as far as the one month. But I certainly think that, you know, there's a, there's a better of an average chance that it could have been paint. Well, he would have just, if they, she just moved in two months prior, they would have already repainted. They would have already done those type of things. But you know, it, she was there in the summer months in Abilene, entirely possible an issue with the air conditioning, entirely possible that there was a reason he had to be there. We don't know for sure. He was one of the six tested, but, uh, but I would tend to think he would have been, but you know, back to Kathy's question as to whether or not he could have been there. Um, I, I think that's, you know, more than, you know, more than possible that he could have been someone that was there and certainly had, had the means to do that. There's, we don't know anything about motive. Uh, you know, I know that, that the, uh, the coworker had basically said that, that, you know, when they were there trying to bang on the door to get in that, uh, that, you know, she did see him there and he gave her, I think, you know, but he was creepy. He I gave think her was the creeps. Gave her the creeps. Right. So, but again, who knows? I mean, you're already for them, for the coworker and the mutual uh, friend the slash coworker, mutual friend slash coworker, <laughs> and and also the uh, Abilene colleague. Thank you, the Abilene <laughs> colleague. For both of them, you know, they're already in kind of a stressful situation, regardless of, of how they ended up there. If they're banging on the door, thinking something bad may have happened, and then they see this guy who's looking up at them, you know, that's going to be a weird situation anyway. And they were probably freaked out at that point anyway. Of course, nervous at. At the very least, I would think. Right. So if he, he could have been legitimately creepy or it could have just been because of the situation. But having said that, you know, uh, again, I keep coming back to, of course, if anyone has a key, there's no forced entry. So he, he certainly had the ability to uh, to have gone into that apartment at any point. And the truth is, it doesn't have to be an air conditioner. It could have been anything. You know, if you've ever lived in an apartment, you know, stuff breaks all the time. And, you know, she'd only been there for a little bit of time, but... Anything can break at any time. So clearly he had the ability to go in there and may have had to. Well, and she had a pretty steady work schedule, pretty um, routine, it seems like. And so, um, except for the extra hours she worked, which would just add to it. But her regular schedule was kind of set. And so if she had been watched at all, you'd have a pretty good idea when she was coming and going. And, I mean, you watch the news, you know she's at work. So Sure, and she was on that, that what was it, four days, ten-hour schedule. So, so those are long days. So it'd be really easy to, to get a routine there. Like you said, she's also on the news. So, so it's pretty clear to see the days that she's working. Well, and I don't have, um, you know, I, ha I don't have that news footage from that last day or anything like that. But, um, I mean, you could have watched the news that night and seen her on the news that Sunday night. And, um, you know, known that she was at work and known, well, this would be a good time to slip into that apartment if it's something like a maintenance man theory or... 
or any other kind of an apartment employee that would have uh, that master access to that master key. Right, and the key there too being, you know, the police had pointed out that there was no forced entry, and if somebody has a key, clearly there would not have to be forced entry. Right. The hardest part of the maintenance man theory for me to resolve is that he would have had to have already been inside of her apartment before she got home, and he would have had to stayed hidden and quiet throughout that entire phone call with the college boyfriend. And think about that, too. I mean, not just that we had to stay hidden. This isn't normal work day. I got off work and I came home. Who knows how long but between the Walmart trip, going over to to the, the colleague, the Abilene colleague's house, uh, to his apartment, and all the different things that, that went on there to get the table and all the different things. So it wasn't like it was just 15 minutes. So he would have had been hidden possibly for hours in order to not draw suspicion and not try and time it to where... He was, you know, he was getting there five minutes before she was supposed to be. So no telling how long you would have had to been hidden for that to be a you know, possibility. Yeah, I agree completely. But I think also the only other way that this works is if Jennifer comes home, has the phone call that lasts about an hour, and then goes to bed, and the maintenance man or some other apartment worker with a key enters the apartment while she's sleeping. Possibly. And like you, you know, like we were saying, as far as waiting, not only waiting all that time for her to get there, but if she, she would almost have, like, I think had to have been on the phone when she walked in the door. So on the phone when she walks in the door, so waiting for another hour or whatever portion of the call started outside the apartment, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it is, all that time waiting for, uh, for her to be off the phone. Because yeah. she, she didn't give any appearance, obviously, uh, with the college boyfriend that she was in any danger, felt rushed, felt threatened, anything like that. There was no hint of that. No, no hint of that. Not from him, not from the, the statements that he's made uh, publicly, the interviews that he's given. So, yeah, if she wasn't afraid of any of those things, clearly, you know, someone literally would have either had to have been hidden that entire time, which that's not a very big apartment. That, that doesn't seem very likely. Now, granted, you could hide in a closet, I suppose. There's places you could be, but not a very big place. So all that time hiding and waiting or, like, you said the possibility of maybe came in you know after that at some time in the morning well it could have been hiding in her actual closet because we know that she was using the bedroom as a closet and part of the living room as as a bedroom and so he, maybe he was hiding in the actual closet maybe she used the actual closet for things she didn't use too often i mean it's it, that's all speculation it's just hard to to say but yeah there weren't a lot of places in in a one-bedroom apartment like that i mean i haven't been inside of it but um, not a lot of places to hide in a one-bedroom apartment. I think the only other piece of this that we have to remember is if it's a maintenance man theory, then this would almost certainly have to be a premeditated attack with the intent to murder her. I mean, he works there. She's going to be able to identify him if he just attacks her. He's got to know going in that if he does this, he's going to have to kill her to keep her quiet. Well, and then the question becomes why? Right. Why on earth would he risk everything for someone that clearly there has been no indication that there was friction, that there was uh, rebuked advance, there was nothing that would that would make you think that this was an issue? No, nothing. No indication of that anywhere. So yeah, it just seems to lack a motive at that point. Although there, are, you know, there are crazy people out there, and there are people that do things that we don't, you know, we can't possibly really understand their motives. But this one seems like it's just. Um, Harder to swallow, maybe. Correct. I agree. Yeah, I, I think that uh, that that while he certainly had had uh, 
had means and and had opportunity, there doesn't appear to be anything close to something resembling a motive. Right, and it seems like a fairly plausible theory until you start thinking about the fact that it would have to be a premeditated murder, and then you're talking about an entirely different kind of a situation. Yeah, and the biggest part of that to consider is if you've got a maintenance man that is capable of premeditated murder, then you're you're dealing with a much bigger issue. This you're talking about somebody that probably doesn't do something like that just once. There's there would probably be a string of things like this. If you're going to to go into a situation like this with a key where you have to have either zero plan and and you're just hanging out there, which doesn't seem very likely, or you're going in with premeditated murder on your mind. Yeah, I agree. And it's um, you'd think it would have happened again since and maybe then this would have been tied to other crimes. And at least by, um, you know, by the mode of death and, you know, the not necessarily by DNA, since we don't really have great DNA in this case that's helpful but just by the, the method. Right, right. And that's a motive you would have seen repeated. So obviously, right, it would have to have been premeditated because you, you go into a situation like that as a maintenance man, you've got a key. If you're going to go into somebody's apartment, you have to have an exit strategy. Right. And so I think under those circumstances with him working there, unless he planned to, to quit his job and flee the next day, she was going to recognize him if... There, if this was a simple attack that he was planning. And not to mention, if you're going to quit your job and leave the next day, hmm, I wonder who did it. You know, right. That's going to be pretty obvious, too. So, yeah, you would have to have a complete plan and, unless that plan was premeditated murder. Right. I think that's what makes this one a little bit tougher when you get down to that very last piece of it, that it would have to be premeditated. All that being said, I think that's a really great question, Kathy, and I'm glad you asked it because this is something I've been mulling over for weeks now. Agreed. Yeah. Great question. I've been searching for more information on this, and I have a few interviews in the works that may help bring some clarity, but I've scoured the internet. So for now, I just don't know the answer to this one. Another question many of you have asked is whether the cat food, any groceries Jennifer may have gotten that night at Walmart, the coffee table, and the other items Jennifer picked up from a friend's house with the Abilene colleague, were still in her car after her murder. Although I've talked about it before on the podcast, I've recently been able to confirm a few details that I want to clarify a little bit. The only thing I know for sure she bought at Walmart was cat food. There may have been other things, but I'm not aware of any at this point. According to Jennifer's mom, the cat food was inside her apartment. However, all three items that were picked up from the friend's house by Jennifer and the Abilene colleague, specifically the coffee table, a banana stand, and a paper towel holder, were still in Jennifer's car after her murder, according to her mother. By the way, I still don't know this person's name, the person who gave the coffee table and other items to Jennifer that night. If you do, or if you are this person, please contact me and let me know. You're not a suspect, but you may have information that's valuable to this case. Our next question is more of a statement, but it's a great topic for discussion. Sarah commented on the Facebook discussion page that something that bothers her is that, quote, the Abilene colleague didn't help her carry up that coffee table. It was already dark outside when they picked it up, unquote. You know I agree with this one, Sarah. So let's talk for a minute about how weird this situation is. This is all speculation, so please know that as you listen. But picture this. You're a guy, and by all accounts, even his own, the Abilene colleague wants to date Jennifer, or is dating Jennifer, or something along those lines. 
Remember in episode five when I told you that Stowers quoted the Abilene colleague as saying, We began seeing each other, though it was clear to me that she was just looking for a friend, someone to hang out with after work or go with to a movie. I accepted that. She was just fun to be around. Unquote. Stowers goes on to say in the very next sentence of his book, I'm quoting Stowers here, and after a time, they became confidants, unquote. Just where every guy wants to be, right? Firmly in the friend zone. This will come up again in a few minutes. So the Abilene colleague liked Jennifer, liked her, liked her at one point, and he seems to be admitting there that he liked her more than she liked him, and he knew it. But this is hours before she's murdered. We know the Abilene colleague likes her, and presumably he's trying to impress her. He's maybe hoping she'll change her mind about dating him. So why does he have her come back over to his apartment that night without ever stopping to help her unload that coffee table and other items from her car? I don't know. Maybe the coffee table was smaller than I'm picturing it. Let her wait. But I still doubt she could have easily carried the coffee table a banana stand, a paper towel holder, some cat food, and maybe even her purse in from her car that night in one trip. We know from the surveillance video at Walmart that night that Jennifer did have her purse with her. And it was late at night, as I keep saying, after midnight. And it was dark. And then she'd have to get her keys out and unlock the door with her hands full. So why didn't the Abilene colleague offer to help her, either before or after the trip to Walmart? Maybe he did and she refused, and that was that. She was a strong, independent woman, so it wouldn't be unfathomable. And maybe she didn't want to encourage the Abilene colleague's feelings for her, or lead him on by letting him do those kinds of things for her, which would be smart, let's be honest about that. But it still has an odd feel to it, because here's how I see it. It's odd that they didn't either go straight back to her apartment so the Abilene colleague could help her unload those items, or if it was that out of the way, they could have done it on their way home from Walmart, or any combination that made more sense. So there are three Walmarts in Abilene now, but in 2002, there were only two. And I'm not sure if they were in the same locations in 2002 that the older two Walmarts are still located. So I'm still checking into this. People from Abilene, please let me know if you know where the Walmarts were back then. So I'm still trying to figure out which Walmart location Jennifer and the Abilene colleague went to that night, and whether it would have been entirely out of their way for the Abilene colleague to have gone back with Jennifer to her apartment to help her bring up those items. David, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I do have some thoughts on this. As a guy, none of that makes sense to me. If I am legitimately wanting to date somebody, whether she wants to date me or not, I'm probably going to go above and beyond. I'm certainly not going to say, all right, see you later. Hope you can get that table up the stairs. I'm probably going to go ahead and try and help. If it leads to something great, if it doesn't, that's fine too. But why would you not at least make that effort? That's never made any sense to me. And even as a friend, I got to tell you, if I have a, a female friend who's moving a piece of furniture, I'm going to go back with her and help her move it up to her apartment because a lot of girls, most girls, I don't know the answer to that. Me specifically, I want to see that piece of furniture in my apartment that night. I want it upstairs, so I'm excited about it. So I would definitely say, hey, let's go back to your place and let's take this piece of furniture upstairs. 
I, I agree. I, I don't think there's any reason for him to have not been there trying to help with that. So, again, that's just never made sense. So I guess what we're supposed to think is that the Abilene colleague was thoughtful enough that he insisted upon walking Jennifer to her car that night after when she was leaving his apartment, but not so thoughtful that he would go back with her after they picked up the furniture to help her carry up the coffee table. Yeah, that's never made sense. He is a guy that was, is at the time dating her, which, you know, wants there's, to. right. There's certainly conjecture there, but the bottom line is he clearly still wants to be in the game, so to speak. So, so his, his thought is I'll, I'll let her carry up my groceries and then good night. <laughs> you know, he's not going to take them over there. So yeah, that's, that's something a guy you wouldn't think would do. And how many groceries did he have that he needed help? I mean, did he need help or was she just helping just because they're both there so yeah let me grab a bag too i mean that's one of the things it could just be a semantics kind of thing that then got kind of extrapolated out to be this bigger thing potentially but i think the thing is i don't think i would have a problem with this one way or the other if if he had taken his things and she had taken her things and both had gone their separate ways and i'll see you tomorrow whatever the thing was but when she goes over to his place and specifically helps him and you know, why didn't they go to her place first and drop off the coffee table and the things that she had? Yeah, it's it's perplexing. It's it's just an odd piece of, of information. And we do get that straight from the Abilene colleague. So that's his story, and that's his public story. So, I mean, there's no real question about it unless you don't believe him. Right. And and there's some things there that are that are at issue. You know, the whole idea is if you know, when I said he was dating her, is dating her at the time, wanted to. You know, but then the following morning, he's basically saying that uh, she's giving him the brush off. Well, right. We have information that, you know, prior to at least a week or, or so prior to Jennifer's murder, that he was already saying that he knew that she didn't want to be more than friends, but that he did. And he's admitted that. So then we have that next morning, um, he's telling the mutual friend slash coworker. I think she's giving me the brush off. And the mutual friend slash coworker seems to really be like, yeah, it kind of seemed like that to her. So she didn't think anything else about the fact that no one could get a hold of Jennifer because, yeah, it seemed like that Jennifer was just avoiding him. But was she avoiding him because there was something that happened the night before? I mean, who knows? Maybe it's because he didn't help her uh, bring the table up. Maybe that's why she was giving him the brush off. Maybe he felt guilty and he thought maybe she's mad about that. Well, makes sense. I think she probably would have been. It's a possibility. But the truth is, if she doesn't want to date him, she is an independent woman, clearly. It's not unfathomable that she would have said, no, I got it, no big deal. I mean, maybe it really was, this coffee table was not a big deal. Maybe it was just a kind of a lightweight, small thing. And she said, no, don't worry, I'll get it tomorrow. And maybe that's all true. But I, I guess, like I said, that the problem that I've always had with it is that, you know, he definitely let her, even if it was one bag, her carry groceries up so that that you know i agree sarah that was always kind of a weird thing yeah and i guess the biggest problem with it is the optics are bad the optics are just bad for the abilene colleague on this one right it's easy to to get that those brownie points to go ahead and help her bring those things up unless of course she just didn't want him to which is entirely possible agreed i think the other issue here is that we don't know exactly yet where those two walmarts were in Abilene at the time. There are now three. And, you know, my experience is that when Walmart expands, they 
move. Walmart's generally uh, move when they go to a bigger store. They don't usually rebuild the store they're in. They uh, they they will move into a different store. So a lot of times you will have it where it becomes a different store. In the city that we're sitting in now, it's now Hobby Lobby. Right. So it's hard. To t- it's not like you can just say, well, the new Walmart must be where the old Mar- Walmart was in 2002. Right. And I think, you know, that's what, what we've questioned through this whole thing is why did they just go, you know, maybe they drove in tandem, maybe they didn't. And that seems to be the thought is that they drove in tandem. But regardless, why did they end up where they did? And why, you know, did that make the most sense geographically, logistically to to go to his place first? It doesn't seem like it would because everything is relatively close together, you would think. To me, the key is where did the person live who they picked up the coffee table from? Because if they lived way across town, because most of these things, the TV station, Jennifer's apartment, um, even the Abilene College's apartment to some extent, it's very close. But those things are all on the south side of Abilene. So if this other person who they picked up the coffee table from lives on the north side of Abilene, maybe they went to the, quote, nice Walmart, the new Walmart, the big Walmart, who knows, whatever was the newest one at the time of the two. Maybe they're like, oh, hey, we're over here. We might as well go to the new one. It's better. And it's entirely possible. I mean, that's information we just don't have because we don't know where the table was picked up from. And when we were in Abilene, you did talk to the desk clerk at the hotel and um, she gave us some ideas about where it was. But that's at this point, you know, just kind of someone's recollection who's lived there. um, And we want to do some more some more research into that. So. People in Abilene, if you know where the two Walmarts were in 2002, get a hold of me. Yeah, leave that on the Facebook message group, uh, email, any of those methods. So why do you think the Abilene colleague went with Jennifer to get the coffee table? So that's it for today. We'll be back answering the rest of your questions this Thursday. If you know the answers to any of these questions, or if you have corrections or conflicting information for me about anything I've shared, be sure to contact me and let me know so I can track it down and share it with everyone else. You can email me at Sharon at JusticeDelayedPod.com, or you can contact me any of the other ways noted at the end of this episode. All my contact information is also located in the show notes for episode six. Thanks to everyone for listening and for sharing your great thoughts and questions. There are still so many unanswered questions about Jennifer's case, but there are people out there who know those answers. If it's you, be sure to let me know. That's why it's so important that we continue to get the word out about Jennifer's case. We need to reach the person or persons who have information about who murdered Jennifer. Did the Montana boyfriend still have a key to Jennifer's apartment? Did Jennifer get the locks changed after he moved out? And what about those stolen DVDs? We'll pick up where we left off next time on Justice Delayed. In the meantime, brainstorm with me. Help guide this investigation by sharing your thoughts and ideas. And listen along as I conduct this sometimes brave, definitely challenging, but mostly heartbreaking investigation into Jennifer's murder. This is our call to action. So keep getting the word out about Jennifer's case. Like I said last week, our listenership is growing. As people are learning about the podcast, they're going back and starting with episode one. We gained a lot of new listeners in October, and that trend is continuing. We have almost twice as many downloads so far this month as we did at the same point last month. So keep up the great work, guys, and thank you. So continue to post about Jennifer. Share the podcast's promos and the new episodes as they're released. 
Keep inviting your friends and family to join our discussion group on Facebook. It's growing too. Post on Instagram or Twitter and use the hashtag Jennifer Servo or hashtag Solve Jennifer Servo's Murder. Follow us on Twitter at Justice Delayed P. That's Justice Delayed, followed by the letter P as in podcast. And on Instagram at Justice Delayed Pod. Email me with questions and ideas about additional avenues of investigation at Sharon at JusticeDelayedPod.com. Remember, every time you mention Jennifer's case, it increases our chances of actually reaching the people we need to reach, whoever they are, and wherever they are. A lot can change in 15 years. If you know anything about Jennifer's case, or if you just think you might, contact me. It can be anonymous if it needs to be. If you were even a peripheral part of this case and you want your story told, contact me, even if you think it's insignificant. Every piece of information helps, especially now. If you know someone who is part of this case, let them know about the podcast and encourage them to contact me and tell their story. You can call my dedicated voicemail line at 210-836-8680, or you can contact me any of the other ways noted in this episode. If you have a tip about this case, contact the Abilene Police Department at 325-673-8331 or Crime Stoppers at 325-676-TIPS. You can also find those phone numbers on our website at justicedelayedpod.com. Or if you're uncomfortable contacting either of those agencies, contact me and I'll help get your information to the right people. Be sure to subscribe to our feed if you haven't already so you'll get our latest episodes as soon as they drop. And be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, but only if you like us a lot. It really does help the podcast gain more listeners and reach more people. So far, we've reached listeners here in the U.S. in 40 of the 50 states, plus D.C. We've also reached listeners in the U.K., Ireland, Australia, Canada, Denmark, Sweden, Poland, Norway, New Zealand, Mexico, and some from, quote, other regions, wherever those are. So thanks to all of you for making this cause your own, and keep up the great work. By the way, if you don't like us so much, thanks for hanging in there anyway. But don't rate us. We're good. If you post a five-star review, I'll give you a shout-out on next week's episode. We got a new five-star rating, so thank you to whoever did that. But be sure to write your name on your paper next time by giving us a quick five-star review, too, so I can give you a proper shout-out. And thanks to all of you for continuing to actively share Jennifer's story and the podcast. Our numbers are steadily increasing, which means more and more people are learning about Jennifer's case. And again, a sincere thank you to everyone who has taken the time to show their support for the podcast and for Jennifer and her family. Right now, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Libsyn, and there are links to our episodes at the bottom of our justicedelayedpod.com website. If you have a favorite place to listen to your podcasts, let me know, and I'll do my best to add it. The next episode drops Thursday, and I'll be answering the rest of your questions and talking more about that odd coffee table situation, the Montana Boyfriend's Key, and the stolen DVDs. So join me as I actively search for justice in the form of a murderer. Remember to participate in the brainstorming, send me suggestions for leads to pursue, and ask questions, all on our Facebook discussion group. Or just follow along as I try not to get into too much trouble. So join me on Thursdays for more about the unsolved homicide of Jennifer Olson Servo. 
Justice Delayed is a Humanity LLC production. I want to say thank you to Jennifer's family for being so helpful and cooperative throughout this process, even though it isn't easy to relive this kind of pain week after week. All music for this episode is provided by Lee Rosefear. You can find his music at happypuppyrecords.ca. Our logo was created by Caitlin Spencer, my editor, web designer, all-around tech expert, and my sidekick for this week's episode is none other than my husband, David Edwards. My sources for this episode are detailed in the show notes as they were last week, along with all of my contact information. Our success depends on your participation, so remember to send in any leads you think I should pursue or any questions you have about the case. This is Sharon, and I'll be back.